Hi, I'm Nick Horrocks from X.0 Advisory, and welcome to My Digital Journey, a series of podcasts about how technology continues to influence, challenge, and disrupt business. We'll hear from entrepreneurs creating online platforms, right through to adventurers using social media to develop their own personal brand. We'll also hear from people in more traditional industries about how digital is disrupting their prevailing business models and how they are looking to address these challenges. These podcasts aim to highlight the issues faced by businesses and entrepreneurs in the modern digital environment. What made them successful? What mistakes they made? How they look to the future? And how they financed those ambitions? Coming up in this episode. Hello, I'm David Levine and I'm the CEO of Digital Bridge and this is my digital journey. So we were established to solve the imagination gap problem for interiors, for wallpaper, paint, furniture. And we pivoted to bathroom visualization. Emotion that was hard to do because we're set up to do one thing and we were jettisoning that thing. And I wish we had done that earlier. What is it exactly that Digital Bridge does and what, what's the product? So one day I came home from work um, I think it was away on some business travel. My wife said, can we redecorate our room? And I said, sure. She said, great, what do you think? And showed me an inch-by-inch ripped-off square of wallpaper from uh, B&Q. And I kind of looked at that and went, I have no idea. I have no idea what that little ripped piece of sample roll would look like in our room. And long story short, I went and researched, figured there must be someone somewhere out there who has software that would allow me to see that wallpaper in my own room, not some stock room, it was my own room. And there were, but they were very, very poor. And I did the cliche, left big, safe, um, high-profile, very well-paid corporate job to set up on my own, and here we are. So we do guided design for bathrooms and kitchens, which allows any consumer, irrespective of their design experience, to design, build, and buy their dream kitchen and their their dream bathroom. Today, consumer buying behavior has fundamentally changed. Most people do almost all of their purchasing online, all of their inspiration. They're inspired by what they see online on social media and Pinterest and House and Google Images and Instagram, whatever it might be. And they do a lot of their research online. Yet, the two big areas that people still need to engage with a professional with a store is in bathroom and kitchen. These are big ticket purchases. These are complex rooms governed by complex design rules from an aesthetic perspective, a utility perspective, a health and safety perspective. And after the purchase of a house, they're typically the the second biggest investment after the house itself. So people need to speak to people, need to validate their complex rooms. And trying to get myself and my wife together at the right time, at the right place, is difficult enough with both of our you know, busy diaries to go into a store and meet with a professional designer for bathrooms or kitchens or get them to come home is hard enough to do that once. Yeah, you know, when you come up with a design and you want to change you know, three or four days, actually, I want the oven there, I want a different type of oven, I want to move the bath to a different part of the bathroom, to try and recreate that process and get that designer back in and go back into the store and pick up where you left off is really, really complex and it's a process full of friction. So, Digital Bridge, we're using AI and computer vision to solve a lot of those friction points in the journey and just get rid of the hassle in a new bathroom or, or a new kitchen. 
So how, how, what does the consumer see? Do they go online to your website or do they go online to your customer's website? And how, how does that work? So what they do is they go on to um, the retailer's website. I can't really share publicly who we're working with yet, but uh, suffice to say, some are very, very, very big names globally in the industry. So they go on to the retailer's website and they are engaging with the retailer. It's the retailer's journey. It's the retailer's product set. And what the retailer is trying to do is to engage with the consumer earlier on in the journey. So today, people will typically start by looking at, at Pinterest or looking at inspirational images and aspirational images of that dream bathroom and kitchen and, and kind of ask themselves, this is awesome. How do I get this in my own room, in my own house? How can I afford this? What's the journey and how do I make it happen? And that's where we're trying to, to help. And sitting behind this technology platform that you've developed, is there a huge amount of data? And what, what, what happens with that data? Um, there is a large amount of data, particularly in how products come together, how products are bundled together, how various products work together. But also, and this is a really big difference here for us, is how consumers actually use products in a design and how they move it and for a particular room, for a particular budget, for a particular set of constraints such as why they're actually doing it in the first place and, and, and who's going to use that space and then we watch them as they do that design journey either with themselves or with a professional either online or in store, how they convert, why they convert, what do they do before they convert or if they don't convert, all of that data is incredibly valuable particularly because our entire system is based on machine learning. So building that type of knowledge of what consumers actually really do, how and when and where and why they convert or don't convert, and folding that back into the mix is incredibly powerful. And are you seeing evidence now from the retailers that they're able to take this learning and refine their products, develop new products, you know, even redesign their stores? No, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think you have, like in an industry, a wide gamut of retailers who are at different parts of their digital transformation journey. You have some who have really cracked the whole omni-channel journey, and Home Depot are a really good example of that. You can see the numbers, particularly around Black Friday of of last year, of of 2018, and, and how they really delivered that incredibly compelling user experience to their consumers online and offline and joined that journey together really seamlessly and, and, and the numbers, the results that they, they did. So, so they're kind of on the one end of that. And they, there's still things they, they want to do. Uh, and you have other retailers who are struggling to get fully functioning websites together, websites that can stand up to the, the peaks and troughs of demand and, and how you have retailers with, let's say, properties and, and, and opcos in different countries and how they can harmonise um, that offering. So you, I think there is a way to go. And I think because we are really, really specialist and really focused on this niche of bathrooms and kitchens, there is an immense amount of value that we can deliver to the retailers in this space around the knowledge, around the data, what people are doing. And that's what they're looking for us to do. Brilliant. It sounds like a very positive story to date. So how have you funded your growth from it being an idea in, in a bedroom looking at wallpaper or a bathroom, apologies, um, to where it is today? Uh, wings, 
prayers, chewing gum, sticky tape, uh, and support of uh, of our investors. So uh, fairly early on, I met with a number of angels who I was I'd worked with previously, and had pitched this as an idea. And I remember my um, my main angel investor, who I used to work with, and this was before I left left working with him. He said, "You know, because it's you, David." I'll, I would invest because I know you. I don't think what you what you want has legs. I don't think technically you'll make this work, but if it's you, I'll, I'll invest. And I said, thank you very much, but tell you what, let me go away and let me prove that this has legs. Let me prove that we can build the technologies, really cutting-edge computer vision technology to solve the problem, and then I'll come back to you. And I did, uh, and, and I went and I found a, a couple of... Uh, PhDs at the University of Manchester to help me build that that proof of concept and we built that and we um, got some very early stage initial traction and I went and I, to that investor and got him to come on board. My brother also um, put a small amount of seed money in and then over time as we kind of went through each stage of growth we've always found angel investors and I think we have a very compelling story because it's, it's solving a real business problem that people can identify with. So, for example, you know, when you talk about, let's say, doing big data, you know, it, it, it's a buzzword, and there are people doing really interesting stuff around big data, but a lot of people, unless they're really embedded in that space, don't really get or understand what, what that is or what it's doing. But you talk to somebody about bathroom design, they, they get that. And you actually, very often you get, you know, if only I had that two weeks ago, two months ago, when I did my last bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. So... The fact that people can actually understand at a simple level and emotionally engage with what you're trying to do makes it somewhat easier to, to get that investment. But also, we have pulled together the most incredible team, highly, highly talented individuals who are doing incredible things, really pushing the boundaries of the discipline of their art in, in AI, in computer vision, in software development, and we're just creating some really awesome stuff that people look at that and go, wow. Um, not just the fact that we're, we're based in Manchester. You know, I've spent time out in Silicon Valley and with US-based companies. And, you know, and, and they've, even if they've heard of Manchester, they probably think it's, it's rainy, which might not be, be incorrect. But they don't really think of us as kind of a, a technology hub, which is a shame because the, the very first stored program computer was run in 1948, about 300 yards from this office here in Manchester. You know, we are the, the global home of the computing industry, never mind the first industrial revolution. And the work that these guys in this team here in Manchester do is, is quite simply jaw-dropping, and that makes it easier to find investors. But you've still got to find investors, and you've also got to find, I guess, the right investors. And I guess that's probably as important as just the money itself. So how many funding rounds have you done so far? So we're um, in the midst of our first institutional round. So working with um, a VC. And we've, um, we've been very successful in, in finding and engaging the right VC. Prior to that, it, it's been angels. Um, it's been people who I have known. It's been through a lot of hard work and graft in networking within the various communities um, that were supported, particularly here in Manchester, the number of people, for example, at GP Bullhound have been immensely, immensely supportive. And in fact, probably the big, one of the biggest inflection points of our business is when we were asked to 
pitch at a high net worth dinner in, in Hale in uh, in all the edge actually some some years ago and and I put this in front of a number of high net worth individuals who had built their own tech businesses and had exited and they were very excited by what they saw and we found our our chairman as a result who invested in the business and that was a very very important moment for us um, and we've found additional investors along the route but through personal contacts through networking through raising our profile they don't come to you you, you got to kind of go go find them you know it is hard work there's no doubt whatsoever that if i was in london or if i was in the us it would be easier the the key difference i often see with investors is early stage investment in the us is do you have a concept is the market big enough and are you the right person to drive this forward in the UK, the exact same stage, early stage investment is do you have 100,000 of monthly recurring revenues? Worlds apart. It's the reality, but it's worlds apart. And, and that's why we struggle. And that's because I think people take a different view to risk and have a different appetite for risk in the UK, in the Northwest, compared to the US. Well, it's a very interesting observation and hopefully one that will change over time. So you're on your first institutional funding round now. What does success look like for you personally as an entrepreneur, but also for Digital Bridge? I'm not sure the two are particularly different, actually, because you know, we are not quite one and the same. One's a person, one's a business. But for us, we want to be the biggest company in the bathroom and kitchen space. We want to create these most incredibly compelling consumer experiences that allow a consumer, no matter their, their level of design experience or expertise, to be able to design and, and have that dream bathroom and, and kitchen. And I think if, if you look from the outside, you might think, yeah, they're probably more interesting industries than, than bathrooms but you know, or kitchens, but people and families spend a lot of time together in the kitchen. Um, you know, even the art of being a family perhaps has lost somewhat where people spend that time looking at the phones rather than, than each other and talking with each other in, in, in the kitchen. But it's a lot of time in, in, in the day and, and food is a very social aspect. And, uh, you know, bathrooms are not just uh, utility spaces, but also relaxation spaces with, with wet rooms for showers and jacuzzis and, and, and the like. And they're very aspirational and people get inspired by what they see. And they get an, an awful lot of, of enjoyment and contentment from those correct spaces. So being able to deliver that is, is phenomenal. Being able to apply really, really complex technology, leading-edge technology, but in a way in which a consumer doesn't even realise that. They just get what they want is, is what we're striving to do. You are effectively a young company, startup, small number of people, Finance, but obviously without you know, the backing of huge multinationals or anything like that. How have you persuaded large enterprises to take your technology on board? The fact is, I think large enterprises, I've spent my entire career selling to large enterprises, either within a small business or as a large enterprise. And I think fundamentally, you've got to understand it is a business problem you are solving. And if you can articulate how you are solving the problem and preferably the traction that you have from the track record, how you have solved that problem for other retailers, then as long as you can convince and reassure the large enterprise that you can deliver this for them, 
then whether you're large or whether you're small doesn't make a lot of difference. Larger enterprises delivering software have, have advantages. You know, they're not going out of business tomorrow. Um, they have proven record in various different things, but very often are slow. They're not necessarily responsive. And as a retail customer, you are but one of many, and you're not necessarily that, that flexible. As a smaller business, I wouldn't say we're a startup, we're very much a scale-up business now with, with 35 people and, and great revenues. You have that flexibility, you have that ability to ensure that your customers feel the right amount of love, that you have enough of a foundation to be able to really reassure these leading global retailers that you can deliver. And the retailers, the mul- we are working with global multinational retailers today, um, being able to, to share that with potential customers is a great deal means a great deal of credibility and you, you've touched on this already but i think it's it's something that certainly people listening to this may may want to know a bit more about how have you recruited the, the top quality staff that you have and also found the necessary talent around the boardroom table as well to help advise you personally so finding talent has been very much a journey i think it is it's being obsessed with the quality of person. It is not just about the skills, the software development languages that they've used or their experiences, which are, of course, critical, but it's about culture. It's about values. Um, and, uh, but culture and values in itself are, are quite easy to stick on a piece of paper and stick on a fridge and, and to, um, to bring up in, a, in an interview. But um, as I spoke with Cal Henderson, one of the CEOs of Slack a few months ago, and he made this point directly. Uh, I was at a networking event, and we were at the table together, and he, he asked him the question, and he was very clear. It's actually the behaviours that underline the values that you test for. And in an interview scenario, and in that interview process, you are constantly looking for evidence of behaviours that really go to your culture and values. And you've got to hire for your culture and values. And at the end of the interview process, no matter what we do, no matter who they are, no matter how good they've interviewed, no matter how good they are on paper, we always ask one question of ourselves, which is, could we sit next to this person for four hours on an aeroplane without wanting to throw either them or ourselves out of the window? And if the answer is no, that person isn't coming here. And there have been a number of scenarios where we found somebody who is on paper phenomenal, and even interviewed really well, but we sat down and said, could we? Is that the right person? Is, the right, is he or she the right fit? Would, would it work? And we said no to some people. And to a large extent, the same around the board, the board table, you know, people have a kind of a, I won't say it's a strange view because I understand it, but when you're out there looking for funding and actually where you get your board representation from is from your investors, very often people perceive it as a one-way pitch. We're, we as a business, a startup, as a scale-up, trying to sell ourselves to the investor. That, to my mind, that's the wrong way of looking at it. The investor should be selling themselves to you. The investor should be making it really clear why they add value. And I always ask, I'm really explicit, you know, investors will always say, you, you pitch on them, do you have any questions for us? And I'll say, yeah, what are you going to do for us? What value do you bring to the table? Money is important, but money you can pretty much get anywhere. What are you going to do? Do you have contacts? Where's your experience? Have you built businesses like ours? Have you helped extend a growth startup from the UK to the US? What's your experience in supporting growth stage businesses and all the, the aches and pains that that involves? 
and I interview them, and it, it, it's it's so so crucial because when you take somebody's money, and when they take a seat on your board, you are getting married. You are getting, and, and the divorce would be very very messy. But it's not even about looking and trying to anticipate those those downsides. It's about if you can find that right value add, it's incredible. Particularly as a as a sole founder, sole CEO, and not a co-founder, you know it can be a bit lonely sometimes. There are decisions that need to be made, and sometimes you need some some external third party to sort of help you see the wood from the trees. And my board do that, and and you know hold my feet to the fire when 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 needs to be held. They'll support me when when that's needed. They're there to bounce ideas off, and they they're there to really help me see see it. And as my chairman often says, you know, my job as CEO is to work on the business, not necessarily in the business. I think that's very good advice, actually, that your chairman has passed on to you. So you've obviously put a huge amount of store by people in the business. Yeah, in terms of how you split your time between product recruitment, marketing, finance, you know, how much time do you actually spend on trying to find the right people for the business? To be honest, thankfully, for me personally, not a great deal anymore because we've got to the point where, quite frankly, my team do a far better job of finding people. I'll often say, you know, as as a CEO, you have four full-time jobs. You have to manage the business, you have to sell, you have to raise money, and then you have to recruit a great team. Uh, thankfully, I now only have three because my team do an exceptional job. You know, we've evolved this, we've iterated this, we've got really, really good at binding the right people um, and at attracting the right people. Um, and I always insist on meeting new people who are going to join the business before they you know make the final decision. Not just because I want to meet them and see if they're right, because you know I rely on my team, and if my team tell me they're the right person, they're the right person. But it's really important for me that that potential uh, candidate sees me, meets me, and is sold on me because we're asking people to come and work here for a substantial portion of the day and they need to buy into the vision, need to buy into the journey and they need to make sure and feel convinced that they're making the right decision. Looking back at your career, what would you say has been your biggest mistake and what have you learned from it? It's a very interesting question. Yes, I've made lots and lots of mistakes. Thankfully, rarely the same one twice, uh, which I think is, is, is a strength. I mean, everyone's going to make mistakes. You've just got to suck them up and, and, and ensure that you learn from them and realise what, what, what happened and why. I think possibly not pivoting the business early enough. So we were established to solve uh, the imagination gap problem for interiors, for wallpaper, paint, furniture, be able to visualise what new wallpaper would look like. That was the, the, the genesis of the business, that, that story that I came home from, from work and my wife had brought me that wallpaper home. To, and we pivoted to the bathroom visualisation, uh, which is it's considerably different. Um, and we certainly hadn't envisaged going into that space. And I actually, I did that because I went to a, a, a GP Bullhound held a, an event they do every year in Marbella and it looked very nice it was a, you know, a bit of a beach holiday and I said to my chairman I'm not doing this because it looks too much like a, like a, t- a three or four days out on, on the beach he said no no you, you've got to do it and I, and I went away and, and kind of there, were, there were two things I sat there in the audience and saw an individual roughly the same age as me maybe a couple of years older um, and he was talking about his um, 
Europe, Central European-based delivery business, food delivery business, like a de- Deliveroo. And he stood up there and he talked about how he is a 650 million euro business. And I literally sat there and thought, if he can, why can't I? Literally. And I came out of that particular session and I was surrounded by all this space and time to think where I was removed for three or four days from the day-to-day of the business. And it literally hit me as an epiphany moment. It says, why are we still emotionally delivering that first product for wallpaper paints? Because it's, it's great, it's sexy, it's winning numerous awards, and it's, people like it, but it's not really delivering a, a good economic return for the shareholders of the business. Whereas this bathroom opportunity, which we'd not long started on, clearly is... And I literally, at that point, I walked out of that session, called my COO and said, we are no longer going to do the thing that we were set up to do. We're going to do something else. This is the something else we're going to do. And we're going to do this whole hog. And emotionally, that was hard to do because we we're set up to do one thing and, and, and we were jettisoning that thing. And I wish we had done that earlier. Well, that's amazing advice, actually. And I think, I think people listening to this will you know, listen to that and think, wow, but absolutely the right thing to do as well. And you've got to be brave in the digital world because things move very quickly. So final question, any advice you would give to digital entrepreneurs looking to start on a similar sort of journey that you've been on? People do come to me, you know, whether I'm mentoring businesses or, or, or for advice, and I'm kind of really clear. So first of all, define success. What does success look like for your business in three years? And if that's the case, where does the business need to be in two years? If that's the case, where does it need to be in 18 months, in one year? What are the key milestones at each of those points? And what are the resources that you need to be at each point? And then figure out how you get just to the next point. Don't worry about the three years at the beginning. Get to the next point. Hustle. Get thick skin. Don't take no for an answer. And whether that's investment, whether that's customers, figure out what it takes. Because the reality is very little of this is brain surgery and rocket science. In fact, the only thing that is rocket science is, is rocket science. And anything that's brain surgery is brain surgery. Everything else, you know, it, it's all doable. You just have to go out and do it. Brilliant. Well, that's a fantastic way to finish. So, David Levine, thank you very much indeed for sharing your digital journey. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Horrocks from X.0 Advisory. Make sure you subscribe for the latest episode of My Digital Journey.